Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMCAST. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMPODCAST. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients. Hello, and welcome back to GEMCAST. I am here with Dr. Kirsten DeWitt. She is an associate professor at Queen's University in Kingston in Canada, and she is one of the leading experts on falls and head injuries in older adults. Kirsten, welcome to GEMCAST. Thanks so much for having me, Christina. We've talked a lot in the past on GEMCAST about falls and even sometimes about head injury. We know that falls is the leading cause of trauma, morbidity, and mortality in this population. And one of the first things that people ask when a patient comes in after a fall is, are they anticoagulated? EMS rolls in, a patient rolls in from the waiting room, they've had a fall, maybe they've hit their head. Are they anticoagulated? Almost before we ask about the GCS or the vital signs, because we've been so trained to ask about anticoagulation. What I would love to learn from you and from your research is how much, if at all, does anticoagulation matter in terms of increasing the risk of intracranial hemorrhage after a ground level fall? Yeah, that's a great question. So certainly... 20 years ago, warfarin was the main anticoagulant, if not the only anticoagulant. And there was reasonable data then to suggest that being on warfarin might increase your risk of intracranial bleeding amongst older adults who fall. But now, really, the vast majority of patients are taking direct oral anticoagulants, which work with a much more predictable onset and offset and really are very different medications to warfarin. And another added layer of complexity is that we now have a dichotomy of patients, patients who are too sick to be on direct oral anticoagulants. So for example, they may be on hemodialysis or nearing hemodialysis, so it's not safe for them to be prescribed the newer medications. So we find that certainly in Canada, most patients who take warfarin have much greater comorbidity than patients who take direct oral anticoagulants. So not only do we have two distinct drug classes, but we actually have two distinct groups of patients, those who are a little younger and healthier and those who are older and sicker. So the thing that's really interesting that's coming out in all research currently is that direct oral anticoagulants do not increase the risk of intracranial bleeding after a minor head injury or a fall compared to patients who don't take any anticoagulation. Okay, so you're saying that patients who come in on a direct oral anticoagulant or DOAC among friends don't necessarily have any increased risk of bleeding compared to, say, an age-matched controlled patient who is not on any anticoagulant. That is a huge paradigm shift. Yes, it's enormous. And uh, we even saw that with the phase three trials for atrial fibrillation and venous thromboembolism. We found that when these, these drugs were compared to warfarin, 
there was less intracranial bleeding. And I'm really pleased to see that that has played out now in everyday life when we look at the other end, when the patient comes into the emergency department. I was involved in, in one population study based in Ontario here, and that was led by Kirat Grewal. And she was really amazingly showed that when you do match patient for patient, the best you can, including a number of comorbidities, age, sex, the, there is no increased risk for intracranial bleeding after a head injury if you take a direct oral anticoagulant compared to not being on an anticoagulant. She also showed that there was a very slight increase with warfarin, but it was very slight. And we're talking about a relative risk of about 1.3 or 1.4, which is really, really mild. So even if you're taking warfarin, your increased risk is marginal. Wow, that's that's another shift. I wonder, where do you think this obsession came from? Was it historical from days when we weren't monitoring INRs as well? So when people came in, they would have an INR of five or six or eight, and then they were all having intracranial hemorrhages. Or why do we have this so ingrained in our psyche that the immediate question you ask after someone had a fall is, are they anticoagulated? Yeah, that's also a great question. And I think there's many factors that have contributed to it. So back in the days when we only had warfarin, a lot of patients didn't want to go on to warfarin. They didn't want to be anticoagulated. And a lot of physicians didn't prescribe warfarin to patients with atrial fibrillation. And in fact, it's only the last 10 years where the cardiologists have really pushed hard with anticoagulation to say, you know, we have to drive down the rate of stroke. So I think what used to happen is we would have a few patients who were taking warfarin. They may not have been the best candidates. They might have had multiple comorbidity. And we may not have had the same systems in place for the INR monitoring that we do today. So here in Canada, I also work in thrombosis. So I'm, I'm involved with prescribing anticoagulation for patients with venous thromboembolism. And most hospitals will have an anticoagulation specialist whose main job it is, is to monitor the INRs and contact the patients all day. So I think there has been a little bit of a shift. Warfarin has become a safer medication. And we're also expanding the patients who we give anticoagulation to, to people who are maybe fit and healthy, maybe in their 50s, say, uh, might have another indication like hypertension or a history of heart failure or diabetes, which would be an indication for anticoagulation if they had atrial fibrillation. And all of that evidence is relatively new. This makes a lot of sense. So our historical fear of anticoagulants maybe comes from the fact that it used to all be warfarin, the INRs were not well controlled, and really the use of warfarin in addition to its anticoagulant properties was more of a marker for this is a very old, frail patient with many comorbidities, which we know from some of the studies you and others have done that age marker and the frailty are other things that do contribute to intracranial hemorrhage. But I feel like there's still, I still have some fear of anticoagulants in that, correct me if I'm wrong, if the, if the patient does have a bleed, the prognosis is much worse if they're on an anticoagulant. Is that part still true? Yeah. And again, we don't have fantastic data, but on the Ontario data set that we looked at recently, when we matched patients between no anticoagulation, direct oral anticoagulants and warfarin, we found that those on warfarin did worse. So the higher mortality rate actually approaching 20%, actually even maybe 21% at 30 days compared to either 
no anticoagulation or a direct oral anticoagulant, their mortality rate was quite a bit lower, somewhere in the region of 12 to 15 percent at 30 days. So again, it looks like the direct oral anticoagulants are safer when you have a bleed compared to warfarin. And it is definitely a little tricky to tease that one apart. It could be that warfarin actually is worse when you have a head injury and maybe the physiology is such as that the bleeding is worse. It could also be that these patients are frailer to start off with, with more comorbidity. So let's say we have a patient. We see patients like this every single day who is a 78-year-old woman who has a non-sinkable ground-level fall and bumps her head. And we are faced with the question of, should I do a head CT or should I not? What are the factors that we should look for or what criteria can we use to say, yes, you need a scan, yes, you don't, or we should just scan anybody who's over the age of 65? How should we think about that? Yeah. So we've just completed our second large multicenter cohort study recruiting patients who are 65 years and older who've had a fall and attend the emergency department. And from the data that we've just finished analyzing, our biggest finding is that if you're over the age of 65, you've fallen and you have hit your head, then you have a higher risk of intracranial bleeding in the next 30 days. So we would definitely advise if the patient has hit their head, whether they have a bruise or not, that they have a CT scan of their head. And actually that, that tallies very nicely with the Canadian CT head rule, which has a cutoff of 65 years. In fact, if you look at all the CT head rules, they all have age in there. So I think the take home message is if they've hit their head, then they have a higher risk of intracranial bleeding and it would be worth doing a scan. If they haven't hit their head, then there might be a num number of other things that we'd look for, all common sense. Do they have a new neurological deficit? Right? I think we would all do a CT for somebody who had a new neuro deficit or is their GCS re reduced from baseline? Quite common sense aspects. But I think the big one is having hit their head. That actually makes it nice and simple, you know, to be honest, because we can still look for some of the other things that are in the Canadian head CT rules or other rules and criteria, for example, if they have a GCS less than 15 or any signs of depressed skull fracture, basilar skull fracture, vomiting. But then if they are over 65 and they've hit their head, that makes it very easy. We can get a CAT scan on that person. The next question is, well, I'm scanning their head. Should I just throw in a CT of the neck? Should I just throw in a CT of the C-spine while they're in there anyway? How would you approach that? Yeah, good question. And I think there's huge practice variation. When I compare my practice to my colleagues' practice, I think we all differ. And that's actually one of our secondary outcomes that we're looking at our study. And unfortunately, we, we haven't finished the analysis yet. I can tell you that very few people had any C-spine injury, way, way less than 1%. And we, we recruited over 4,000 patients to the study. But we are currently looking at predictors for C-spine injury to work out who would we recommend should have neck imaging. My practice, and I don't know if this is evidence-based, is to ask the patient if they have neck pain, if they're oriented. Check for tenderness. Obviously, I would check the neurology of the upper limbs to check that's normal. And then if they can move their neck, they have no pain, they've got a normal neuro exam, then I don't tend to image. Well, we will keep that one 
on the to be determined list also for when you finish your data analysis. We'll have to have you back and talk more about the C-spine. What about the idea or the possibility of a delayed bleed? This kind of made a lot of noise a number of years ago that, oh my gosh, the CT scan might be negative now, but you could be missing a future bleed three days from now. And there was all this concern of, should we be admitting these patients for OBS? Should we be sending them home to then bleed three days from now? And then that hasn't really seemed to pan out. So from your experience in the data and the research, what are the chances of a delayed bleed after they go home? Are there any people who are specifically high risk that we should be more concerned about? Yeah. So in keeping with all of the previous published literature, we found that delayed intracranial bleeding occurs very seldom and definitely less than 1%. So our findings were very much in keeping with previous meta-analysis there. To give you an idea of our 4,300 or so patients that we enrolled, about two-thirds of the patients had a head CT scan in the emergency department, and we ended up diagnosing 114 bleeds in those patients. And that left about two and a half thousand patients who ended up going home after a normal head scan. And we found 18 of those were diagnosed with intracranial bleeding in the next six weeks. So it's not zero, but it was over a six week period. <laughs> so my take home message from that is I don't think keeping somebody in the emergency department for a day or two days and then rescanning their head is probably going to pick up those delayed bleeds. A lot of them happen two weeks later, three weeks later, or four weeks later. And sometimes they happen because it's a frail elderly person who's fallen again. So, okay. so in my practice, if I'm examining somebody who's maybe had several falls in the past few months, then sometimes I have a slightly higher index of suspicion for thinking, you know, could, could this be somebody at risk of bleeding? Or if they had a fall maybe three or four weeks ago and they're coming in with new headache or neurological symptoms, then I certainly think about it, even if they had a normal CT head scan then. But from what I, I understand from practice across the world, I know of nowhere where an older person would be brought back, say, to a clinic within 30 days or two weeks for another scan. And Probably if we were going to look for delayed bleeding, that would probably be the approach. We'd look for who's higher risk of delayed bleed, and then we would organize them to come quite a bit later back for the scan, not 12 hours later or 24 hours later. So yeah, it happens very seldom, but for sure it's a phenomenon that occurs and probably occurs over weeks rather than days. And that's a good point. This could be from another fall. Somebody who's fallen once is going to have a propensity to fall again. Which brings us to, let's say we have our 78-year-old woman who had a non-sickable ground-level fall and uh, hit her head, and we scanned her, per your you know suggestions and Canadian CT rules, and we did not find a bleed. What can we be doing then to help prevent that future fall that could cause a bleed? What are what would be an ideal state, for example, of what we could do? And then we'll we'll reel it back into, you know, what is your general practice with the limitations that we have? Yeah, well, I have to say here in Canada, in the emergency department, we have a, a huge limitation with resources. I think an ideal state would be we would have a pharmacist review all their medications and we'd have a physio assessment. 
we perhaps have social work or occupational health review all of these patients <laughs> so that they could have interventions, particularly to optimize their medications, to make their medication list a safer list, particularly to optimize their, their mobility. And perhaps that would even happen, you know, as in a rapid outpatient follow-up. I'm not sure if you have access to that. Unfortunately, we do not, but I would love for that. <laughs> I know that sounds amazing to have this team that just swoops down in and does a PTOT, a consultation, maybe a nutrition assessment yeah. or a frailty assessment or a home assessment the next day to look at ways to make the house more friendly. How has your practice changed, if at all, over the course of the last decade or two that you've been doing research on this topic? Has your practice pattern in this area changed as you've learned more? I work also in thrombosis medicine, so I deal with people who are on anticoagulation all the time, and I'm very aware of the different medical conditions that can increase the risk of bleeding on anticoagulation, such as renal failure is a good example, or cancer. So for some time, I was also using those quite heavily in my assessment for intracranial bleeding in older adults who fall. And we included a lot of those items in our fall studies, so we've now completed two of them. And actually, it seems that many of those, although there may be a very weak association, are not that helpful for assessing in the emergency department. And the thing that really shines through is the risk of intracranial bleeding definitely is associated with the traditional risk factors that were identified, you know, two, three decades ago with Canadian CT head rule and the nexus rule. So age obviously is a big one, but loss of consciousness, <laughs> vomiting, amnesia of the events and obviously seizure, they seem to be big indicators that there was a significant impact to the brain. So I actually now use those. I have much greater respect for people who come in with a headache and say that they can't remember what happened to them compared to many older adults who fall actually can remember everything and they, they have minimal symptoms when they come in. That's a good summary. I think, you know, some of the ways I have changed my practice is now in a sense, not necessarily being laissez-faire or blasé about a person who is on blood thinners, but recognizing that actually the fact that they were on blood thinners is more of a marker for other factors like frailty, advanced age, you know, loss of volume in the skull, weak bridging veins. So now I'm kind of more concerned about patients who aren't on anticoagulants. I've just kind of leveled those out rather than reducing one level of concern, raising the other. And, and also changes that have happened in, you know, the last decade in my institution are now we are much more aware of and able to get physical therapy consults. We don't have a whole amazing you know, team that swoops down like some places, but we are able during business hours to get a physical therapy and occupational therapy consult in the ED who can help say, okay, here's what we think of this patient. Sometimes they'll say they're not safe to go home. They need to be admitted, or we, we need to set up home health or home PT or outpatient PT or things like that in terms of preventing future falls. Is there anything that you wish people would know or that people would stop doing or start doing or think a little bit differently? Here's a chance to, to share that thing that you wish with anyone yeah. listening. Two, two things. I think from the point of view of emergency physicians, I wish they would start taking a history about aspirin use. So aspirin is seldom recorded on a pharmacy list. Really, you'll only see aspirin on the list if the, the aspirin is put in a blister packet. 
So it, certainly in Canada, like 95% of people who take aspirin buy the aspirin. There's no prescription involved. And because of that, there's this idea that it doesn't really matter if someone's on aspirin. We don't need to record that. And currently, we have conflicting data about the risk of being on an antiplatelet medication and head injuries. And there are certainly some studies that suggest aspirin might be a higher risk than an anticoagulant for intracranial bleeding. So no understanding, you know, you might see clopidogrel on their, their list. Well, you need to know if there's aspirin there. Because <laughs> if they're on two antiplatelets, then, well, now, you know, you've really got my attention. The risk of bleeding is, is now double what it was on one antiplatelet. So I think for emergency physicians, I wish that they would pay a little bit more respect to antiplatelet medications. Wow. So, okay, we talked about DOAX and warfarin. What is the risk with meds like clopidogrel plus minus aspirin? Should we still be much more concerned when patients come in on those after a fall? Yeah, I think the jury's out as far as being on a single antiplatelet medication. We've had conflicting results with some studies suggesting, yes, there are higher, there's a higher incidence of intracranial bleeding. And I am, I'm doing another study at the moment, which is ongoing, collecting data prospectively on patients on antiplatelet medications. And we only have about 300 or so patients in that study, but certainly I can tell you that the rate of intracranial bleeding seems quite high, a little higher than I would have expected. But we don't have big studies yet to tell us for sure. The second thing to say is if you're on dual antiplatelet therapy, we know like the cardiac literature has already established that your risk of bleeding at least doubles. So being on a single antiplatelet will already give you a, a risk of, of major bleeding somewhere between you know, one and 3% per year. If you're on dual antiplatelets, then you could have a risk of bleeding at five to 6% per year. And that would be all major bleeding, including GI, intracranial, large intramuscular bleeds, et cetera. So I would still apply those findings to intracranial bleeds. So I always have great respect if somebody's taking dual antiplatelet medicines. Well, Kirsten, thank you so much for being on GEMcast. I have taken away a lot of things, a lot of food for thought. Mostly that this is good news, that overall we have better meds now. We we don't have so many very old frail patients who are on warfarin and their INRs are unknown. Instead, we have a trend towards using DOAX, which tend to be safer and cause less bleeding, but still some concern with the antiplatelets, especially, especially when they're on dual antiplatelets. And really the things we should be looking for are more the age, frailty, and then signs of intracranial hemorrhage, like vomiting, loss of consciousness, amnestic to the event, a neurodeficit, seizure, or signs of injury to the head. But keeping it simple, your research bears out that if you're over 65, you've fallen and you've hit your head, that you are at high enough risk of having a bleed that it is worth getting a head CT. Definitely. Any final thoughts? Yeah. No, I think you summarized perfectly. Yeah, that would be my take-home message. If the patient is elderly and they've hit their head, then they need a CT scan. And maybe in some ideal future state, we can design emergency medicine to also layer in all those services to help prevent future falls. Because while they haven't had a bleed this time, maybe the goal is not just to then send them home. Ideally, we would want to say, what can we do to prevent the bleed next time? Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much, Kirsten, and good luck with the rest of your research. I look forward to reading up on what you find with the dual antiplatelets and with the C-spine injuries. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of GemCast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GemPodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients. Thank you.